Well, praise the Lord. Uh, welcome to our NETS training, session 10. Now, we're still talking about faith. And we know that Jesus told us in, in Mark 11 that if we believe <clears throat> that we have already received it, it will be ours. <clears throat> That's faith. Once we know a promise, we believe that we have already received it, and then it will be ours. If we believe that we have it in the spiritual realm, it will be ours in the physical realm. It will be manifested. Faith is to believe that we have presently what is not apparent, but what is promised. Now, what hinders our faith is what we want to look in tonight. In Romans chapter 4, it talks about how Abraham, in verse 20, did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. He was in faith, not in unbelief. And because of that, he was convinced, as we saw in Hebrews 11, that all the men and women of faith became convinced. And that brought glory to God. And even though Abraham had faith for something which to this day he still hasn't manifested, he still hasn't received it because it's still future, it still brought glory to God and still brings glory to God because he walked as one that already had received. Now in Hebrews 11.6, of course, we've heard this numerous times, without faith it's impossible to please God for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. By faith Noah, being divinely warned, of things not yet seen. He was warned of things that were not yet seen. In other words, not only was there a flood prophesied to him, and that had never been seen before, but they had never seen rain before. They had never seen a boat before. They had never seen probably anyone drown before. They had no concept of what God was saying to Noah, yeah. that something was going to come and destroy the earth, that water would until that day, every night a mist would come up from the ground and water the earth. The mist doesn't seem too dangerous. But he was divinely warned of things that were not seen, and because he had faith in what he was spoken, he moved with godly fear, and he built the ark and saved his household, even though the world was condemned. By faith, in verse 8, Abraham obeyed. Faith causes us to obey. Obedience is faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed. And he went out where he would receive his inheritance, not knowing where he was going. What he did know was he wasn't going to receive it where he was. He obeyed in faith, and he went out, even though he didn't know where he was going, he went and he was directed. Many times we don't receive because we don't go. You can't direct a boat that's docked. All you can do is loose it. Well, faith is for the promises which are, are not presently seen. Faith is for the promises that we have heard of but don't presently hold. If you already have it, then you don't need faith for it. You may need faith to utilize it, but you don't need faith to have it because you have it. Now, what hinders our requests and our prayers? Just a few things. One, unbelief. In Matthew 13, 58, 
It says that Jesus could not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now Jesus, the mightiest man that ever walked upon the face of the earth, could not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Not because of his unbelief. His faith was perfect. He always had faith. He always had perfect faith. It's known as the faith of Jesus, faith of Jesus Christ. It's that perfect faith, the, grain, the faith like the grain of the mustard seed, that which can do miracles, that which can bring into this earthly realm the supernatural to do good, that the name of the Lord be glorified. But yet, even he could not do many mighty things because of unbelief, because God will not overstep our freedom of will. And if we choose by what we believe not to receive God's blessings, then He can't give them to us, even though He'd like to. In Mark chapter 9, verse 24, the record of the, the man that brought his son to Jesus, when the disciples could not cast out the demon, it says, immediately the father of the child cried out and with tears said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus said, hey, if you believe, all things are possible to him that believes. And he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Seems like a contradiction. But what he's saying is, I believe he can be healed, but obviously I don't know how. I, I don't know what the holdup is. Help me. And because he asked for help, he received the help. Now there's different kinds of unbelief. And we need to know of at least two different categories. And this category here with the Father, help my unbelief, is from the Greek word apostia. And what that means is you have unbelief, but it's because you don't know enough to believe. There's something missing in what you know. For, for instance, if we pray for someone, and they're not healed. It's due to unbelief. Maybe yours, maybe theirs. It may not be that either of you disagrees with Scripture that they should be healed, but it may be that you don't know what it is that's keeping that healing from coming. That's apostia. So therefore, if you dig a little deeper and go to the Lord, He's liable to unveil to you and reveal to you the secret of what it is that's holding that healing from coming. Now in this situation... This boy actually was not healed. Many times when we pray, the healing is imparted. It just takes time because healing and miracles are not synonymous. We like to have healings immediately, which would be a miracle of healing, but they're not always promised to be that way, but that they are promised that they will be delivered. However, often when we pray and we don't see it immediately, then the person either praying or the person that needs the healing falls into unbelief because they don't see it with their eyes. But what, did, what is faith for? To believe that which you don't see. Now in this situation, that boy was definitely not healed. Because it was a demon. It was obvious that the demon was still there. And it was unbelief that kept the deliverance from coming until Jesus then took the axe to the root. But the apostia type of unbelief is where you don't know enough in order to have faith. So something can be done to build faith in that arena. Now in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 6, it says, And seeing therefore it remains that some must enter, 
And they whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. It's talking about the children of Israel who were not allowed to go into the promised land because of unbelief. See, they, were, they would have been able to go in by faith. Joshua entered eventually by faith. Caleb went in by faith. Enoch went to heaven by faith. But they could not enter in because of unbelief. And this is the word apatheia. can be translated disobedience. In other words, this is a type of unbelief where they have seen enough, they have heard enough, and still refuse to believe. The children of Israel saw mighty, mighty miracles. Walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. Saw the armies pressing in. Saw Moses touch the water with his rod and speak to the water, and it opened. They walked through on dry ground, got to the other side, and saw the waters close on their enemies. Consistently, they saw miracle after miracle. Water come from the rock. Manna come from heaven. Quail come from heaven. Over and over and over again. And yet they refused to believe that God could take them into the land which he had promised. You see, they refused to believe the promise and have faith to enter into that place. So that was unbelief. They'd heard enough and still refused, so therefore the Lord did not allow them to enter in. It's very important to understand those differences because in dealing with people, we need to understand that if we're dealing with a person that just hasn't heard enough or perhaps hasn't been convinced in a certain way, we can continue to work with that person to help build their, their faith. Each of us is like that in some category of our life. Each of us needs help in our faith in some place. That's why we need one another. But when you're dealing with someone who hears time and time again and yet refuses to change, refuses to have faith, then that's apathia. We get our word apathy from it. When, they're, when they have apathia, they're not going to enter in. And God considers it disobedience. Now, in Ephesians 2, 2, you'll see it again. Wherein in time past you all walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, the children of unbelief. It's those children that have heard but refuse to believe. Those that would, wouldn't believe no matter what you did. Like, those were the ones that Jesus talked about that in the, when he told the story of Lazarus and Abraham's bosom. And Abraham spoke to the rich man on the other side of the gulf and he said, even if one were to come back from the dead and speak to them, they still would not believe. And I believe that was a, a record which was actually prophecy because a short time after that, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And when Lazarus was alive, walking again as a witness, the Pharisees only sought to kill him. I wouldn't be surprised in the future to look back from heaven and see that the brothers of that rich man were among those Pharisees. Unbelief, disobedience. Now, 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. In our lives, it will drain our faith, depending on who we're with. If we're with men and women of, of faith, it's going to build our faith. It builds our faith just to read about men and women of faith. But if we hang out with men and women of unbelief, we are unequally yoked, and it's going to pull us down. <clears throat> Once I was given the example by a minister friend of mine when 
a man and a woman came to him. They wanted to get married. The woman was a Christian and the man wasn't. And she thought, well, she'll convert him after they get married. He had her stand up on the table and had her fiancé come and stand beneath her. And he said, okay, as a Christian, you're much higher than him because you're in the spiritual. You're, you, have, you have Christ in you. So you're up here. He's down there. You're going to lift him up. Now go ahead and try and lift him up. And as they held hands and she tried to lift him up, he pulled her right down off that table, which is what happens to us if we're hanging out with people that are unbelievers and we continually hang with them and they are not coming up or refuse to come up, then what will happen? It will drag us down because we're unequally yoked. It's a burden that we can't bear and shouldn't have to. We're not wise to. If we're trying to walk a life of faith, then we need to not forbid the fellowship of the saints to be with those that are like-minded, that are also going the way we're going, wanting to do the things that we want to do that are in, promised in Scripture for us. That word, in that sense there, uh, is translated untrustworthy. They don't have the character of Christ manifested. So therefore, don't be yoked with them. We, don't, we cannot believe what we haven't heard, so therefore, unbelief can be the result of ignorance. But ignorance, through knowledge, can be taken away. So therefore, a person is not ignorant anymore. But if they have the knowledge and still refuse to believe, don't be yoked with them. Now there's an example, as an example of we, we need to hear in order to receive. In light of divine healing, 3 John 3, 2, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Right there, above all things, he wants us to prosper and to be in health. Well, if you didn't know that, it was the will of God, when you're sick, you might not know that you should be getting healing. 1 Peter 2.24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Now we can't get saved unless we know that Jesus was crucified to save us. We can't have our sins cleansed unless somebody speaks to us and lets us know about salvation. Likewise, unless someone lets us know that while on the cross... He also bore all our sicknesses and all our infirmities. We'll never know that divine healing is available for our physical body, so we'll not be able to receive it. To know it, then we have a choice to believe. And we can grow in faith. Well, another thing that hinders our prayers from being answered and hinders us in our faith. Fear. Job 3.25 said, The thing that I greatly feared has come upon me, and that which I dreaded has happened to me. Those things which we're so afraid of, if we don't deal with that fear, we open up a door for them to happen to us. If you're afraid that you're going to lose your job, and yet you're unwilling to change your thought pattern, you'll begin to act like one that's about to lose his job. You'll begin to make mistakes at work. You'll begin to maybe not treat your boss with respect because after all, you feel like he's going to fire you unjustly. And begin, you begin to do things and make mistakes and eventually it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
Whereas if you have that fear, but change your thought, because fears will come, but if they don't remain, if they're replaced with faith, then not only will you not lose that job, but you'll rise up and become greater at it. Because faith will raise you up. But if we fear something, it's going to come to pass. 2 Timothy 1.7 For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. If we walk in the renewed mind, because we have a sound mind, walk in love, faith allows us to walk in power, fear drains that power from us. God hasn't given us the spirit of fear. Now that's not talking about fright that comes when the lion roars or when, when, uh, when something happens, something drops in front of you in a loud noise. That's just natural shock. That can lead to fear. But when we have a fear and we allow it to stay, then it, be, it gets fed by that faith within us and it it will come to pass just as surely as if you prayed for it. It will hinder your, your prayers. If you're praying for something, but you're afraid that it'll never happen, it will never happen because that's unbelief. Fear is unbelief. If you're afraid to pray for someone because you're afraid it won't come to pass, and you might look like a fool, then you'll never pray for anyone, and you'll never see the scriptures that say you can lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. You'll never see it come to pass. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Psalm 56, 11 says, In God I have put my trust, and I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? How come he could say that? This is a man who is many times his life was in peril. And yet he said he wouldn't fear, but there was a reason. Because he put his trust in God. To just make a decision not to be afraid, not to have fear... That's only a start. But to say not to have fear and leave it at that would be impossible. You have to replace that fear with something. You have to replace that fear with faith. And trust and faith are synonymous. He put his trust in God and therefore he didn't have room for the fear. Because he replaced that with something else. Proverbs 3, 25 and 26, Do not be afraid of sudden terror, nor of trouble from the wickedness when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. The Bible says that the, righteous, the unrighteous flee when no man pursues. Sometimes we worry about things before they've ever occurred. You're not going to change them by worrying about them. You may actually bring them to pass by having fear. But if you'll put your trust in the Lord, those great things that you fear will not come to pass. Let's say it's something that's bigger than you. That, let's say something upon your city or upon your nation that is, is coming, that the Lord has said is coming. Even then, to have fear would be unwise, but rather it says the wise see ahead and prepare. That would be faith then in a situation like that. If you were Noah and God said he was going to bring a flood then you wouldn't want to say, well, I don't want to be afraid of the flood. We can't have a negative belief that something would go wrong in the world. We're just going to confess the positive and believe that God's going to do good to all men. And Noah would have drowned with everybody else. But because God had warned him of something that was bigger than his personal faith, then with his personal faith, he as a wise man prepared ahead because he was warned. He used his faith rather than had fear. 
and replace that fear with faith. We trust in the Lord, and if we let Him be our confidence, we have no reason to fear. We read there in, in, in 1 John 2 about He wanted us to prosper. Sometimes we enter into prosperity just because of fear, into, into poverty just because of fear. We're so afraid that we might need something that we withhold it when we could use it. In other words, we have, a, we have something under our care, under our stewardship, in our hand. Someone else has a need of it, but we're afraid we might need it, so we don't give it when we have an opportunity. What keeps us from giving it more often than not, occasionally greed, but more often than not, is fear. We're afraid to give it because, after all, we might need that. Or maybe we most assuredly will need that, but it, it won't be for a while, but we're going to need it eventually, so therefore we withhold it. And Proverbs, uh, the next verse in 27 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your, in your power of your hand to do so. This, this whole mentality of poverty is, it's not that you're poor, but it's that you act poor, and you confess poor, and then you become poor, because you, your fear keeps you there. You're afraid that there won't be food in the grocery stores tomorrow, so that, therefore, you keep more than you should, and you don't give it. Some, many times, you keep it so long it goes bad. You're afraid you might not be able to get clothing for the kids when they're a little bit older, so you keep clothing that you could have given away, and by the time the kids are old enough to wear it, they've already grown past where it'll fit. That fear brings poverty. Poverty doesn't have a, a direct relationship to lack of money. There are many people with lots of money who are poverty-stricken. But then there are those that don't have much in material realm, but are not in poverty at all. Certainly, many times they're related, but not always. It's a, it's a mindset. Many times when I pray and the Lord reveals to me uh, a spirit of poverty which has uh, attached itself to an individual, and I may break that curse, it may be an inherited curse, but if they don't change their words, if they don't change their lifestyles and patterns, it's, it's the, that same mentality to say, well, I can't give this because I need it. I can't give this tithe to God because I'm going to be short this month if I do. Faith says, don't rob God, give to God what is His. If you've got to fall short with somebody, don't let it be God Almighty. When you take that step of faith, that opens up the doors of heaven so God is able then to help you with the other needs that you have. But it's that mentality of fear that brings poverty upon us by consistently withholding when we could give, when it's in our hand to give. By breaking that, and changing our actions and getting rid of that spirit of fear, we begin to walk in faith and God is then able to bless us and bring abundance to us so that we have what we need, when we need it, and then we're not burdened down with anything else. Well, a third thing that can hinder our request from being answered, and that is hidden spiritual authority held by the devil. In other words, something that the devil holds that's not quite clear. In that example where the man brought the son to Jesus, Jesus' disciples had cast out many demons. 
And when this one came, they, they tried to cast it out just like they had all the rest, but this one didn't leave. Now Jesus said it's in the category of unbelief because of your unbelief. But as we know, that unbelief became faith when they had more information. Jesus said, this kind doesn't come out but by prayer and fasting. So when they understood what that meant, so therefore in the, in the, the, the future when they ran into situations like this, they knew what category it would be in. So they would know they now had the information. So it was in the category of unbelief, but in reality also, it was a hidden authority that the devil held. And it had to be broken by knowing what kind of authority it was, it was able to be broken. Many times the devil uh, uses curses and, and attaches to us or to, or to an individual or to the things of an individual. But at any rate, because of an authority which he still holds, it hinders the request. There's another example, not just that one in, in, uh, in Mark 9, but also in Acts 8, where Philip went into Samaria. And he preached the gospel, and people got saved, and the, whole, the city turned to God because of the miracles and signs which Philip did. And even Simon the sorcerer, who they thought was the great man of God, who had bewitched the entire city, even he got saved. But for the first time in all the records in the book of Acts up to that point, nobody in that town manifested the Holy Spirit. And this was the first time this had happened. So Philip had the apostles come up from Jerusalem and they had to minister and break certain things off the people because they had been bewitched. There were certain curses that were on them that were holding back. And even though they were able to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, they were not able to receive all the blessings that came with that salvation until these authorities that the devil still held were broken. Once they were broken, then the people could manifest that. Even Simon himself had to have specific things pointed out to him because even though he was saved, he had to be rebuked by Peter who said he was still in the bonds of iniquity and filled with bitterness, which bitterness is generally the beginning of what takes a person into witchcraft and in his case, sorcery. But that's the root. So Peter was able to go to the root with Simon and take an act to that root, which was the bitterness. The sorcery was a sin. But the root was the iniquity that was in him. By taking an axe to that root, then Simon had an opportunity then to change his ways if he cho chose to. In Numbers 14, 18 and through 20, the Lord's, it says, uh, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving the iniquity of the transgressor, but by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, Moses then spoke to God and said, please, it says right there, he doesn't pardon the iniquity to the third and fourth generation. But then Moses prayed, and in verse 20, the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. In other words, if God sees those sins and those transgressions, they are passed down from one generation to the next. The, the old saying is, the nut doesn't fall far from the tree. And the son may pick up those things without even realizing it. And those authorities just pass right on down. And the enemy, the devil, just continues to work in the next generation. That's where you talk about a familiar spirit. A familiar spirit is someone that knows the family because he's familiar with the history of that family. He knows what great-granddaddy did because he was there to influence great-granddaddy. And he's there with the great-grandson too. 
And because God is just, when those things occur, that the, the judgment continues, the torment continues. It could be a physical inherited ailment. We call it genetically transferred. However, its origins could be way back. We don't know what it was, but it could be some sin or some iniquity back there that brought it into the family line and it's passed down one generation to the next. But it says here, God pardons according to the Word. So when the Word is spoken, that authority is broken. Now the requests can be granted. Faith comes by hearing. Sometimes we need to go to the Lord and have Him reveal these hidden things. When He reveals them and we speak, then the healing, then the deliverance, then the miracle can happen. Because He's just, but He's merciful. Well, a fourth thing that can hold back our prayers and hinder our requests from being answered, a fourth thing that keeps us from having faith, unforgiveness. James chapter 5, beginning in 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. Now there's three things there. There's elders, there's oil, and there's faith. I'll guarantee you the most important one is faith. Biblically, the elders should have faith. The oil represents the Holy Spirit. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ is what brings us the deliverance. The laying on of hands imparts healing many times, imparts authority and builds our faith. To take action on our belief many times brings the faith level up. When Elisha threw the salt in the water that was bitter, it became sweet. There's nothing about salt that makes water sweet. It makes it salty. But there is something about taking action on your belief, whether it makes sense or not, that will bring something to pass in the physical realm. When he threw that salt in, the water became sweet, and to this day, it's still sweet. So by the laying on of hands, we're taking action, we're doing something in the natural realm that people can see and feel, and there is a supernatural impartation many times, and that prayer of faith heals the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And it says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Many times these are the times when things are revealed. And often, if it's something that's hidden, by the oil and the laying on of hands, God forgives those sins because they've submitted, and that's where the healing comes in. Confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You see, unforgiveness... By confessing one to another brings us into a realm of faith. And it also brings us into a realm of agreement. Pray for one another. Often it's by giving that we receive. Often I've seen it's when a person has been prayed for numerous times for an ailment and they just can't seem to get healed, but then they go and pray for someone else, they receive their healing. When Job was vexed for so long. It was when he was instructed to go pray for his friends that he was finally healed. By praying for one another, we're, we're each doing that. We're giving and we're also receiving. That you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And you know the record, we've talked about it, where Jesus was coming 
from Bethany and he was going up into Jerusalem and he saw the fig tree and he went there and there was no fruit on it, so he cursed it and he said, no man eat of you anymore. Of course, representing fruitless Israel, the fig tree being the tree, the national tree of Israel. So it was a, a prophetic act, but it was also a gardener's act in a sense too because that tree, it had been dug around. It had been uh, fertilized for a year and yet here it was still not bearing fruit. So he cursed that, but in the morning, the disciples noticed that the tree had died from the roots up. And Jesus said, look, have the faith of God. If you'll do that, if you'll have the faith of God, you can speak to the mountain, say, be removed and cast into the sea, and it will be. So if you say it, in verse 23, and don't doubt in your heart, but believe the things which you say, they will be done, and he will have whatever he says. You must believe it. Therefore I say to you, whatsoever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you'll have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. You see the context here? Now here was Jesus going into Jerusalem, knowing full well that he was going to be betrayed, knowing full well that the house of Israel was going to turn against him, and he's cursing the fig tree and is dying. God's answering his request. And what he says is because you have to walk in forgiveness. Don't hold anything against anyone. That your Father in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. One of the major ways to hinder your prayers is to have unforgiveness. People may hate you, but if you hate them back, then you have now entered into that realm of unforgiveness and your prayers will be hindered. If you walk in faith, then you don't have to fear what man will do to you, right? Matthew 7, beginning of verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you'll also be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. That's not talking about, okay, you be good to someone, they'll be good back to you. That does work sometimes. Kindness does bring kindness sometimes, but not always. Sometimes kindness is perceived as weakness, and it just brings the bullies. But what happens if you'll give, God will give you according to your measure. With the same measure that you measure out to men, God's going to measure to you. If you walk in forgiveness to men, God will forgive you. Now, you may have your forgiveness spiritually because you've confessed Jesus. But if we're talking about manifesting it by faith, by walking in it right now, not leaving it stored on the shelf, but actually walking in that forgiveness. If you don't forgive, then you don't manifest that forgiveness that God has given to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ attained for you. But if you will, then you'll receive it into manifestation. Verse 7, we've seen this before. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you if, he, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good things unto your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, 
whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. What's the law and the prophets? The whole Old Testament. Jesus summed up the whole Old Testament into the golden rule. Do unto others what you'd have them do unto you. Now Confucius said, don't do unto others what you would not want them to do to you. Sounds really good, but it's a, it's a doctrine of inaction. Holiness is not just the absence of sin. Holiness is the action of righteousness. Jesus didn't say, just don't do something and you'll get to heaven. What he said is, go do what you would want men to do unto you and you'll fulfill the law and the prophets. And the context is, don't judge. The context is, ask and receive. So we hinder ourselves if we hold unforgiveness. Well, fifth thing that will keep us from manifesting faith, that will keep us from having the, the uh, requests that we give answered by God, and that is simply praying or requesting something that's not God's will. To pray against God's will. If you pray contrary to God's will, there's only another, there's two other sources that could fulfill that request. One, the soul, a man, some man could give it to you, or the enemy, the devil, could give it to you. Many times we pray for something we think is good and God's withholding it because He knows it will hurt us. But we keep praying, we keep praying, we don't submit to what He's trying to tell us and eventually the enemy then uses that faith and brings it to us and it may just be that blessing that destroys us. We call it a blessing. God never did. But if we'll pray against His will, you can guarantee God is not the one that's going to bring it to you. 1 John chapter 5, 14 and 15. Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. We have the petitions that we have asked, past tense of Him. If we ask according to His will, He hears us. If He hears us, He's going to begin to work on it immediately. If we'll walk in faith, then we will receive those requests in a manifestation. But it has to be according to His will. Psalm 37, 4 and 5 says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, and trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. What are we doing? Committing our way to Him. Let Him bring it to pass. Often we pray, or we receive from God, and then we decide we're going to help God. Remember, Abraham did that. He said, well, I'm going to be the father of many nations. I'm going to be the father of many nations. I am the father of many nations. I am the father of many nations. He saw the sand. He saw the stars. But years went by and years went by. His wife never conceived. She says, well, take my handmaiden. In that culture, that was fine. So he ended up with Ishmael. That wasn't God's choice. So now he had a problem. He had a firstborn child who wasn't by the woman that God said the son was going to come through. So then later when Isaac came, there were problems between the two. And even to this day, there are still problems between the two. The descendants of Isaac today in Israel and the descendants of Ishmael today, most of the Arab world, to this day are still arguing and fighting over who is the rightful heir of Abraham. 
So we can try to help God along and do it our way and it'd be totally wrong. If we wait on Him and His timing, He'll bring it to pass instead of we having to bring it to pass. But we have to have confidence in Him. We have to commit everything to Him. Delight yourself in the Lord. Not delighting yourself in the things of the Lord. Those are good. We have faith to bring to pass so He gets glory. But delight ourselves in the Lord. Thy word was found and I did eat it and it came, became the joy and rejoicing of my heart. The word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. See, delighting in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, many times that's taught. If you'll believe God, He'll give you whatever you want. That's not what it says. If you'll commit your way to the Lord, if you'll delight yourself in Him, the desires that come within your spirit will come from Him. And then you'll know what to ask for. And then when you ask for it, it is His will. And so He hears you and He brings it to pass. And when you speak it, it comes to pass. Why? Because it originated with Him. It was His desire that He placed within you. This is not a verse about selfishness, about you choose what you want. No, God is interested in what you want. As long as you submit it to Him and submit it to His will and put it under His will, He'll sort through those things that are your will, and the things that don't hinder His purposes, they will come to pass. But we need to delight ourselves in the Lord and let Him give us the desires of our heart. Those He will bring to pass, and we don't have to work for them. They'll come to pass simply by faith. It happens by delight and commitment. James 4, verse 3, You ask and you do not receive, because you ask amiss meaning you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend it on your pleasures. You ask, but you don't receive, because you're asking with the motives of selfishness. So James is saying, that's why you're not getting what you're asking for. You're spending all your time praying for things, and you're wondering why it's not coming, and you're putting all your effort into it, but you're not praying for God's will, because He is not in your prayer. That's what James is saying. The motives were wrong. I'll give you an example. Elijah. James talks about this in chapter 5, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that, there would not, that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced fruit. Now there's a man of faith. Most everybody in the nation was probably praying against that, praying for rain. Some of those, 7,000 anyway, had not bowed down to Baal, weren't praying to Baal, may have been praying to Jehovah, send rain. But this one man was praying the will of God. Now had there not been at least one, they wouldn't have come to pass. The will of God would not have been done on earth as it was in heaven because some son of man had to pray with authority on earth for the power of God to be manifested and released. And it was Elijah that prayed and no rain. Then he prayed again and rained. Well, then what happened a short time after that? In 1 Kings 19.44, he says, He left and went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die. And he said, Lord, it's enough. Let me die. And God said, well, it's Elijah. I better answer his prayer. No, God didn't answer his prayer at all. He wasn't even tempted to. Matter of fact, he sent an angel to encourage him. More than once. And he got him back up on his feet and he sent him back out with a whole new commission. 
Later, by faith, he went up in the whirlwind. But at this point in time, he prayed, but it wasn't God's will. And so his faith was not going to be empowered by God. So even Elijah, who is the example of a, a fervent prayer warrior in a number of places in Scripture, had his prayer not answered because it was not according to the will of God. So we get our prayers hindered because we pray amiss. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. And lest you should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. So he was praying. Here's a man of faith, the Apostle Paul, praying for this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan. Now, if it's a messenger of Satan, it's not from God, is it? So, And if it's a messenger of Satan which has come and buffeting him, hurting him, hitting him, attacking him, he has a right to be delivered. He's a child of God. So he is praying to God three times. And what God replied to him was, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my affirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now here's the situation. The Apostle Paul had a messenger of Satan, the literal word angel of Satan, sent against him to buffet him, a thorn in the flesh he called it. But he prayed and he prayed and he prayed, just like he had for other things. But he was persistent in other prayers and they were answered. But in this particular prayer, God didn't answer it. And he said, my grace is sufficient. It's made perfect in weakness, this body. What was he saying? Was he saying, sorry, Paul, you got to put up with this demon for the rest of your life? What God was saying was, don't pray to me. You have the authority over him. With a demon, you may pray for information, but you have to take the authority. And so in this situation, it was a demon. It was a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. He was praying to God to do something about it. And God said, hey, you have the grace. Do something with it. And he figured it out. And he became weak. Why? What is it that you do to receive grace? God gives grace to the humble. When you become weak, he becomes strong in you. Paul had to humble himself before the Lord and, be, and begin to receive the mercy to obtain the grace. And by grace, he was able to take care of that demon. No matter when it was sent, no matter how it was sent, he was able to walk in grace and take authority over it. It took faith for that. But God did not answer the prayer. It wasn't that God wanted him to be tormented by this messenger. It was that God wasn't going to do something about it because he'd already done something about it through Jesus on the cross and given him the authority which operates through faith by grace. Amen? <laughs> well, another thing that hinders our faith, disunity. In 1 Corinthians 10, 6. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion, the word fellowship, of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion, fellowship, of the body of Christ? For we, though being many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. We all partake of that one bread when we take communion. Koinonia, fellowship. It's the word communion. It's the word fellowship. When we break the bread 
and we drink the wine, we do it in remembrance of Him, of Jesus Christ and what He accomplished for us. It says, the, the cup of blessing which we bless is fellowship with the blood of Christ. It's the blood of Christ which, which cleanses us from, from all unrighteousness. All of us, not just you. So when you notice that someone else in the church has stumbled and you speak against them, then you're not in communion with them. And what you're saying is that the blood of Christ was good enough for you, but not good enough for them. And then that communion, the one body, is not functioning as one. Because it says that the bread, Jesus Christ said, this is my body, which is broken for you, that we would receive healing. And he says, we are one bread and one body. We may be many, but we are one bread and one body. So when we have disunity, then we're breaking up the authority that comes in agreement within the body of Christ. We're actually tormenting the body of Christ. We're allowing an infirmity into the body, which is made up of many members. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. What is it to discern the Lord's body? It's to understand that everyone that has confessed Jesus as Lord is your brother or your sister. And they are cleansed by the blood just like you are cleansed by the blood. And you need to walk in forgiveness towards them. And if you don't, then you're not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason... Many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. These are things that they would not be praying for. <laughs> Infirmities, death, weakness. Their prayers were not being answered because they were not discerning the Lord's body. They were not understanding that they were one in Christ Jesus. That didn't mean that they had to agree on everything, but they had to agree on this, that they were one body. And when one suffered, they all suffered. And when one was lifted up, they all should rejoice. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Remember, Jesus said, with the same measure that you meet, will it be measured to you? If you'll judge yourself instead of judging everyone else, that doesn't mean to be critical to yourself and condemn yourself. What that means is to be critical and look and discern and then let the Spirit cleanse you of the unrighteousness. Go and ask forgiveness of your brother. Ask forgiveness of the Lord. Change your ways. Repent. Turn back. Get back on track. If you'll judge yourselves, then you wouldn't be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Meaning when we come to Him, we judge ourselves and ask Him to cleanse us, then we don't have that judgment that the world has. That's a good thing for us to allow ourselves to be judged and chastened of the Lord, because whom the Lord loves, He chastens. But when we walk in disunity, then sickness enters. Our prayers are hindered. Acts chapter 2, 46 and 47. So they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. 
They were in one accord. They were in unity. And because they were in unity, God was able to add daily to them. See, God can't add to something that doesn't exist. By them coming together in unity, they were one body in function, even though they were one body in spirit. In Corinth, they were one body in the spirit. They were one bread, but they were not functioning so. They were not in one accord. And instead, the body was weak and the church was being even more weakened by people dying. But here in Jerusalem, they were of one accord, and so God was able to add to them. Unity will bring addition. Disunity will bring subtraction. Matthew 18, 19, 20. Again, I say to you that if two of you shall agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. The power of agreement. If one can chase a thousand, two can chase ten thousand. Often when we pray together and pray for one another, both or all have an increase in faith. So more can be done than when we're alone. We should not forsake the fellowship of the saints. How about unity within, your, within the household, within your individual families? 1 Corinthians eleven three. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, we understand that after Jesus Christ, that there's no difference in the spirit. Neither bond nor free, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female. And so therefore, in the spirit, there's no difference. But the rules for the household were set down in the garden even before the fall. And so when God put Adam over the woman, it was because Adam was created first and the woman came out of his side. And she was to be a helpmate. And those rules were put in place before the fall. Now, there were certain things that entered into that and certain strifes that came into that relationship after the fall, which we also are still dealing with. But we need to take authority over those curses that came with the fall. But those instructions that were given before the fall have not changed. In the physical body, we're still male or female, or we wouldn't be able to have offspring. No one to inherit from us. So therefore, even though in the spirit, in the Christ that's in us, there's no difference. In our bodies, there is a difference. So therefore, in our household, there has to be understood. When Paul wrote in the book of Ephesus, in the book of Ephesians to the church in Ephesus, he said the same thing. He said that the husband is the head of the wife. And most assuredly, he was writing that to people after Jesus had risen from the dead. And he was also the one that wrote that there's no difference between man and woman. But what did he understand? Principles in the realm of the soul, which is the realm of mankind, the sons of men, those that were set down are still in place and actually can be tapped into through the Spirit. And so what he was writing here in 1 Corinthians 11 is in order. Christ is the head of the man. The man is the head of the woman. And in verse 10 he says, For this reason the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Now, that was cultural, but what is he speaking about directly is that there has to be an order of submission, man to woman. There has to be an understanding of the one submitting to the other and the other submitting back and certain understanding between them. They each submit to one another, but in different ways. When that is done, why do we have to do that? It says, because of the angels. And what he's saying is that if we don't have that agreement in the family, if we don't have that agreement an understanding of what God put down, even in the garden, 
to this day, then the angels are bound and our prayers are not answered. Now, he does give instructions what to do if there's an unbelieving husband or if there's an unbelieving wife, if there's an unbelieving spouse, for instance. There are things that we do, and the one that has the, the believing will then be able to pray, and God will answer those prayers, and the angels will not be here. But it still takes more effort. But if we're unbelieving in that we've heard and we understand and we still rebel, then the angels are hindered and our prayers are not answered. So there's an order in unity within the church and also within the family. But I also like to say sometimes we don't receive because we forget to ask. Luke 11, verse 9, So I say to you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks and finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. You've heard that, you know that. And you remember the acrostic, ask, seek, knock, which is to ask. Sometimes we don't receive what we need because we forgot to ask. So many times I'm looking for something, and I can't find it, and I'm frustrated. I'm saying, God, why can't I find this? I've been looking for an hour. And then it dawns on me, oh, I haven't asked for help. And when I ask for help, almost always within a short time, and I must admit that sometimes by the time I realize I haven't asked, I'm a little bit worked up inside and I have to get my peace. So I'll go ahead and ask, and that's the first step towards receiving my peace because now I have cast my care upon Him. Once I cast the care on Him, it's His, it's his job to take. Right away I begin to come, become peaceful and I'm able to hear that still small voice. And I'm able to be directed. And I can't tell you how many times, probably in the thousands now, where, I, where I've gone through this process. And almost immediately after I ask, the thought will come to me. Or I'll turn my head and look and there it will be. Over and over and over again. Sometimes we have not because we ask not. Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We have to hear it in order to receive it. We have to understand it. Oh, certainly faith doesn't always come the first time we hear, but it won't come at all if we don't hear. And we've got to keep hearing it. We've got to keep speaking it. And we've got to keep telling ourselves. And we've got to keep telling one another and encouraging one another so that we can stand firm and stand faithful. First Thessalonians 2.13 For this reason we all thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God you received you heard it from excuse me when you received the word of God which you heard from us you welcomed it not as the word of men but as it is in truth the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. There was a leader of Soviet Russia who had the entire four gospels memorize and could quote them to you. But they did him no good because he didn't believe any of them. It effectively works in us if we believe. It's got to be mixed with belief. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without works of faith, it's impossible to have faith. Without knowledge and obedience of what is written in Scripture, it's impossible to have the good works of faith. So therefore... To have faith, we must know Scripture, live Scripture, and believe even what we do not presently hold. This is a man of God being thoroughly equipped for every good work of faith. Amen.